Well, let me add my welcome wherever you are today. Welcome to St. Pete's. My name's Alistair. I'm the lead pastor here. And before we get started, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. And as we open it, we ask that you'd apply it to our minds that we not grow shallow, apply it to our hearts that we not grow cold, and apply it to our feet that we not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. During this pandemic, we've been thrust into a season in which we have more time alone than ever before. And as strange as it might sound, I want to consider how we can receive some of this time as a gift. And so today, I want to consider the spiritual practice of solitude. And I want to look at how this discipline uniquely cultivates both awe and wholeness in our lives. But before I say anything else, I think I should clarify that the discipline of solitude isn't simply spending time by ourselves doing activities that replenish. So I'm not talking about going on a hike by yourself or going fishing. There's nothing wrong with doing these things, especially if they replenish your soul. If fishing's your thing, I don't get it, but good, go fishing. Uh, But I just want to say that these things are not one and the same as the spiritual discipline of solitude. Solitude as a practice is intentionally creating space and time to be still before God. That's what sets it apart. You could be by yourself and be active doing things and connect with God, and that's a good thing. But the spiritual practice of solitude is being still before God. And it's the stillness that sets solitude apart. Uh, The late philosopher and spiritual author Dallas Willard wrote this, Solitude is choosing to be alone and to dwell on our experience of isolation. In solitude, we confront our own soul with its obscure forces and conflicts that escape our attention when we're interacting with others. Now, if you want to learn more about what Dallas has to say about solitude, I'd encourage you to read his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. But I think he makes a good point. As a practice, solitude is like getting undressed before God and asking him to tell us what he sees. To describe all the things we would prefer to hide, but also to highlight what makes us beautiful as well. Because it's in the stillness that only solitude can bring that we really truly discover God is our refuge. That we encounter him as the lover of our souls and the one who makes us whole. So let's begin by looking at how Jesus practiced solitude in his life. Throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus had a regular practice of withdrawing from the busyness and the endless demands of people and the potential exhaustion of constant movement. Luke, in his gospel, uh, highlights this, that Jesus would actually retreat to find a place to be with God the Father. He writes in Luke 5, 15, 16, But now, even more, the report about Jesus went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And so Jesus practices solitude in the face of high demand. You know, the rapport of his ministry 
is growing. It's causing a a stir. It's creating a buzz. And as a result, these great crowds are gathering to find Jesus. He's in this high demand position with highly needy people who are coming to him because he's the one person who can actually heal them and make them whole. And so this sort of crisis creates a challenging dilemma. You know, it's easy to say no to someone when what they want from you is rather trivial. You know, if you're invited to come organize someone's excessive shoe collection by color, you're just going to say, sorry, Preston, I can't do that. Or if someone invites you to do something you don't really want to do, it's easier to say no. No, sorry, I can't help you move this weekend. I'm busy. And it's not all that hard for us to say no when we want to set boundaries for ourselves that don't exclude us from something beneficial. But in our world that is so connected, our attention is constantly demanded. And without intentional resolve, we find ourselves saying yes to way too many things. It's all too easy to bring work home with us and to say yes to that email, yes to that extra little bit of effort. It's hard to disconnect from our social circle because we're saying yes to all these messages and pings from all these different sources. And so it's hard to say no and create space for ourselves in everyday life, let alone to say no when the demands are truly urgent, let alone to say no when it means we might be missing out. And it's especially hard to say no to a good thing or a good opportunity. But if we always say yes to everything, then eventually even the good things will start to rob us of life. It's all too common for us to struggle with setting healthy boundaries for our well-being. But for Jesus, he says no to the demands for his attention so that he could seek solitude. And this was an intentional resolve on his part. It was a discipline. It was a choice. It was a habit. It was a practice. In our passage from Luke, Jesus faced great crowds. People who truly needed him. People with illnesses who needed his time and his attention. And they could only be healed from him. But Luke says Jesus would still withdraw to desolate places to pray. But surely Jesus, of all people, could actually justify working a little harder and ignoring his own needs. The fact that Jesus prioritizes withdrawing, even in the face of great need and even good opportunities, shows us that there is something essential to the practice of solitude. There's something essential to it. Jesus, as the Son of Man, fully human, needed this practice for his own flourishing. But Jesus, even as the Son of God, as fully God, needed to withdraw to be with God the Father. Because being with the Father is the basis for everything Jesus was doing in the world. He could not neglect this time to be with his father. Otherwise, everything he was doing would be for naught. And Jesus, he expected his disciples, including us, to emulate him here, to follow him in this practice. In the Gospel of Mark, we read about the disciples going off on their first missionary adventure, and it goes very well. And so Mark writes this about when they return in chapter 6, verses 30 through 31. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they'd done and taught. 
And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For they were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. It's strange, don't you think? The disciples come back excited. They're rejoicing. Things have gone well. They're sharing their TPS reports. They're understandably impressed with what they've done. And there's so much more to do still. There's so many things demanding their attention that they are neglecting to eat. And so they face this dangerous opportunity to get so caught up in doing, in engaging their work, in saying yes to all these good opportunities, that they were failing to nourish their physical need, let alone their own spiritual need. And just as they need food, Jesus is teaching them in this moment that they need rest. They need solitude. They need to be still before God the Father. Reflecting on this passage, Ruth Haley Barton says this, Jesus is concerned about the bigger issue of how they will sustain their spiritual life rather than being distracted by outward successes. It's so tempting, isn't it? It's so tempting to stay in the stream of busyness, especially when we find a sense of self-worth in accomplishing or achieving something. The disciples, they face this temptation to define themselves by their success, by their mission, by their work, by how they're participating in all these things for God's kingdom. And in many different ways, we face the same allure. Whatever work it is that might fill our day, whether it's caring for children or working in an office or or studying for school, whatever it may be, the practice of solitude counteracts this tendency we have to define ourselves by what we do or what we achieve, by how we perform or by how we fail to perform. Instead, the practice of solitude teaches us to be with God and to see that being with God is the basis for our identity and everything we do. Jesus calls us to be restored through the practice of solitude so that the endless demands of life do not consume us. In his book, You Are What You Do and Six Other Lies About Work, Life, and Love, Daniel M. writes this, You are not what you do. Doing does not result in done. It only results in more doing. In fact, there's no badge of honor in a life of doing, only exhaustion and despair. So Jesus, he calls his disciples to rest. He calls us to rest, to be still in solitude so that they could find their sense of identity, not in what they do, but in belonging to God. And in doing so, they will find restoration from all of their doing and all that it takes from them. But I think it's worth asking, how is it that solitude is able to replenish us? How does it restore us? And I can't help but think of Psalm 46. There we read, be still and know that I am God. And perhaps this is a truth that Jesus wanted his disciples to grasp. Here, the psalmist is celebrating that God is his refuge and strength, his sole sustenance, even as the earth gives way. The psalmist even puts these words, be still and know that I am God, on the very lips of God. And so the psalmist is telling us, this is a command from God. This is important, but why? 
In being still, we can know that God is God and we are not. The psalmist, in praying this, believes that this should produce in us awe. Most of all, the psalmist knows that God is with us, even if the earth gives way, even if our lives are in disarray or chaotic, even during a global pandemic. God is with us. Be still and know the Lord. And so the disciples in resting are reminded that it's God who accomplishes the work that they're doing. And that this work they're participating in should not define who they are. Whether they have success or failure in life, their identity needs to be derived from the fact that when they're with God, God affirms them as beloved children, loved by him from all of eternity. That is the basis of their identity, not their doing, but their being with the Father. So solitude, it can clarify our identity by reminding us who is with us and whose we are so that our sense of self-worth, our identity is not based on what we do, but rather on whose we are. Yet, even when we begin to think about implementing this practice of solitude, we might feel some hesitations, right? It might feel a little overwhelming, sure, you know, the Developing a practice that could solidify our identity with God, that sounds nice, but it's often not the first thing on our minds. Most of us are simply too busy to prioritize this time. For others, the very thought of solitude might bring up deep-seated fears of loneliness or rejection or abandonment, or it might just sound boring. Indeed, some of the classic Christian writers compared solitude to imprisonment. I mean, how appealing is that? Solitude may even conjure up memories that you'd rather soon forget. You know what happened when you were the rebellious little child that you were? You were often sent to your room to be alone or told to sit in a corner. It may even be possible that solitude reminds you of hide-and-seek. Tell me if this ever happened to you. You were invited to play hide-and-seek by your older sibling and their friends, and you thought, this is great. I just want to make sure that I'm not the one seeking them out, because your little mind knew that older kids were way better at finding hiding spots than you. But to your relief and to your surprise, you don't have to be the one seeking. You get to hide, and so you hide. But you know you got to find a good hiding spot. And so you don't go to the obvious culprits. You don't hide under the bed. You don't hide behind the couch. You don't tuck yourself behind a curtain. No, instead you go upstairs to the pantry and you crawl in the bottom shelf and close the door behind you. And a minute goes by and no one finds you. Five minutes go by and no one finds you. Fifteen minutes go by and no one finds you. Twenty minutes go by and you realize that you're not playing a game of hide and seek, that your sister and her older friends were playing a game of hide and get lost, Alistair. Now, isn't this our fear, though? That in practicing solitude, we might carve out time to be alone and just end up being alone. What if God doesn't show up? Isn't this one of our fears about solitude? What if God doesn't show up and we waste our time doing nothing when we could be doing something. 
And honestly, I can understand this fear. I think it's legitimate, but it also reveals a deficiency in our understanding of who God is and who Jesus is. We must remember that Jesus is God incarnate, the living God who decided not to deal with us at arm's length, but to become one of us, to reveal his love to us, to meet us in the mess of life. Jesus even says to us, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And the apostle James wrote, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. So no matter what we may or may not experience in solitude, God has promised us that he's with us always. And that if we draw near to him, no matter how feeble our attempt may be, we will discover that he indeed has already drawn near to us. When we carve out time for solitude, although we might have to learn how to be attentive to God's presence, we are promised that he is with us. He will be found. He delights in drawing near to us. But let's say we take the risk and we begin practicing solitude. We carve out 15 to 30 minutes of our time to sit in our favorite place to seek God. You know, let's get more practical. Let's take 30 seconds right now to sit in silence. Now, 30 seconds would be way too long on a video, but you get my point. What happened? Where did your mind go? You know, maybe you start to think about how the preacher needs to hurry up and finish his point. Or your thoughts got stuck on how terribly awkward this experiment is. Or if you're with someone watching this stream right now, maybe you noticed again just how loudly they breathe. Or maybe you imagined Lloyd riding a unicycle singing Danny Boy. Maybe you thought of things you were thankful for. Or maybe you started to wonder, where is God in this? Where is God in my life? Where is God in the world? Or if you're like any human, maybe all of these thoughts were fluttering around at once. When we carve out time to intentionally practice the discipline of solitude, we first confront these many thoughts that vie for our attention. Then we confront ourselves, and we confront the things that preoccupy our hearts, the things that are always going on deeper within us beyond the fleeting thoughts. You know, maybe you think about a person a romantic figure, someone you're in love with or someone you would like to be in love with or someone you would like to love you back. Perhaps you think about your career and what you're going to do when you get the next job or the next raise or the next position and how you're going to get there. You know, maybe you're thinking about the house or the dream home that you've always wanted to build and you're saving up and you're hoping you can get it. In the moment, you're still, maybe your mind actually starts to race And you feel anxious because you see your time as something that needs to be constantly productive and engaged in and and useful. And so you begin thinking of everything that needs to be done or could be done. When I engage in solitude, when I get past those initial thoughts, what I usually confront is my own exhaustion. You know, usually if someone asks me, hey, how much are you working? I'll say, Enough, probably a little too much. But the deeper issue is that I always think whatever I'm doing could be done better. And so it begins to exhaust me. And when I'm still before God, I have to sit with this exhaustion and it feels heavy. When we sincerely begin to engage 
in this practice of solitude, we know we're invited to be still and, and to stop and to rest and to simply be with God, but instead we discover just how deeply restless our souls are. And we discover that maybe we are actually substituting God for things that can't fulfill us. And so solitude, it can actually be painful. But the pain of confronting ourselves, the pain of confronting ourselves, it's not meant to cause guilt or to make you feel ashamed. Solitude, by design, lets some things we would rather deny bubble up to the surface. And even so, whatever may arise, there's an invitation to be with God as we are, not as we think we should be. To be with God as we are, not when we've accomplished enough with our lives. To be with God as we are, not when we've arrived at some level of moral perfection. To be with God as we are, because that is always how God meets us. Not as we were, not as we think we should be, but as we are in this moment. That is who God cherishes. That is who God loves. And what's remarkable about God is that even in solitude, as these dark parts of our lives or embarrassing parts of our lives bubble up, God doesn't withdraw from us. He doesn't recoil from our sin and move away from us. It actually evokes his compassion and he moves toward us. The prophet Hosea, for example, he ministered during a season of Israel's profound unfaithfulness and sinfulness. And you would think, okay, God's done with these people, but that's not what God says through his prophet. This is what God says. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. You see, even in our failure and sin, God's heart is not to retreat from us, not to move away from us. Our sin actually evokes his compassion toward us. He moves toward us to make us whole, to restore us. And in the life of Jesus, we see this with even more clarity. Jesus didn't come for those who were well and had their lives put together. He says explicitly, I came for those who are sick, for those who need a doctor, not for the righteous. He dined with sinners and he draws near to us in our sin and he reaches out to us with compassion. And the cross shows us just how close Jesus is willing to draw near to sin Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. Jesus drew so close to our sins that he became our sin. And he did this to forgive us, to cleanse us, to make us white as snow, to make us whole, to restore us into a relationship with God where we can be known as God's beloved children. This is the painfully beautiful part of solitude. We confront ourselves in all of our mess, 
but it's our very mess that stirs God's compassion towards us. And so in solitude, we begin to rest in our belovedness before God. We start to receive his compassion, even in all these things that start to get unearthed. Learning to be still in solitude is an invitation to trust that Jesus makes us whole at the cost of his life and he gives us the rest that our souls desperately need. So solitude is this invitation to see how we're turning to things to define who we are that actually take away from who we are. Solitude's an opportunity to see all the ways that we think we have to be rather than receiving who we already are in Christ. And so solitude is this invitation to be loved in our complexity and our mess and to open our hands and receive the gift of rest and grace that Christ himself offers us as we sit with him. And so solitude, as you begin to practice it more and more, it often feels like coming home after having been away for a while and being greeted by a father who runs out to embrace you who's eager to be with you and to hear about how you're doing. And in solitude, you might hear something like this. You don't have to be perfect because Jesus is perfect. You don't have to control things because Jesus is in control. You don't have to impress people because Jesus accepts you. Or similarly, you can fail because Jesus forgives you. You can be weak because Jesus is your strength. You are not worthless because Jesus offered his life for you. You can rest because Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Some of you, you're downright tired. And others, you're realizing you've been finding your identity in the wrong place. And so I invite you, whatever might be stirred in you, to bring that to God and to know he has compassion for you. He doesn't look down at you. He sits with you and wants to restore you and wants you to know that being with him is enough, that you don't have to do anything because Christ has done everything for you. Some of you might be even hearing these truths about God for the first time and you're feeling stirred by it. And all I can invite you to do is to sit with God and talk honestly with him. God is eager to be with you. All you have to do is talk to him. And I want to encourage you to start a daily practice of solitude, to try it out for the next month. Years ago, I met with a spiritual director, but just once. And in this meeting, he he looked at me after a bit of a conversation. He said, look, Alistair, all of your different spiritual disciplines, they're so cognitive and rational. You read the Bible every day and you write out your prayers and you read books and then you write articles. But it's all your mind. Your heart might be involved, but it's so much effort. So here's what I want you to do. When you go home, sit with God on your couch. Now, I tried this for a few days, and I wasn't all that impressed initially. I thought, well, this isn't the best use of my time. And I found, like I've described, that when I would sit with myself, I was just stuck with my thoughts. And so I put this practice down for a while, but it's a practice that I've continually picked back up and began uh, to learn how to really engage in it. 
As you know, this past July, I was on an extended vacation, and as the vacation came closer to its end, I started to feel a bit overwhelmed, overwhelmed by uh, the, the work that I knew was waiting for me when I opened my email or returned to Vancouver, overwhelmed by the news of what's still going on throughout the world, overwhelmed by a lot of different things on my heart and mind. And so I decided to practice solitude, to be still with God. And so we were at my parents in Sydney, and I went into the backyard late one night, and I sat on this little bench they have, and I just sat with God. And Psalm 131 came to mind, and that psalm says, I have stilled and calmed my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child, I'm content. And I just meditated on that verse, and I sat with God and said, Lord, I don't feel content right now. I I feel overwhelmed, but I want to be like this weaned child that can sit peacefully with, with its mother. I want to be like that with you. And a few minutes went by and my mind was a bit distracted. And so I kept coming back like, Lord, help me be content with you. And, and after some time, peace came into my heart and, and into my mind. And I didn't fabricate it. I couldn't force it. All the things that were on my mind and heart, it's not like they just went away. I still have things I have to work on and work through. But in that moment, I knew God was with me and it put everything I might have to do into its proper place. And so I want to encourage you to pick up this discipline of solitude. And here's the first thing you should do. Pick a time. If you're going to try every day, pick a consistent time. Now, if you already have a practice of reading the scriptures and praying in the morning, add it to that time. Maybe begin with the practice of solitude before engaging the scriptures in prayer or or do it afterwards. But also pick uh, a place where you're not going to be distracted easily and a place where you're comfortable. I'm more comfortable sitting. I know some people who prefer to lie down. Whatever it may be, pick a time, pick a space, pick a posture, and then be gracious with yourself. Start with five minutes and see how that goes. And then maybe the next day do a little bit longer and a little bit longer and work up maybe to 15 minutes or 20 minutes. But don't get too preoccupied with how long. Work on just being still. And what you're going to find is you need an intention. I want to be really clear. Christian solitude isn't about trying to just clear our minds. It's not even trying to force God's hand. The intention is to actually be with God and allow God to show up as God wants to show up. And so one way to start your solitude is the Jesus prayer, which is simply, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or you could pray, come, Lord Jesus Christ. And as you get distracted by thoughts or as things bubble up that you find hard to face, return to that intention. Right now is not a time that you're trying to engage your mind and sort everything out. You're not trying to fix everything in your soul. Just say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me and sit with him. And here's just some advice on how to approach the different thoughts that will come up. Don't judge them. Just let them be. There's an author who talks about solitude, and here's the four things uh, he has to say about our thoughts during the practice of solitude. Resist no thought, retain no thought, react to no thought, return to your intention. And so whenever you realize that your thoughts have gone astray, just return to your intention of why you're trying to be still. You just want to sit with God like you would sit with a friend 
with a family member. You want to be in his presence. You want to know his compassion. You want to know his love for you. And what's beautiful is the promise. God is with us. And when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And in this chaotic and uncertain season, during this global pandemic, as we have a little more time alone than we would prefer, I want to invite you to try using some of that time to be alone with God, to be still before God and know that he is God, that even if the earth gives out, he remains good and he is with us until the end of the age.